Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 8th, 2016, and before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org. You'll find a link there to vote for your favorite episodes of last year of 2016 and give us some additional feedback about your listening habits. Really appreciate that. Now on to today's guest, author and economist Mark Wachowski, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Mark has written widely on pensions, retirement, social security, and other policy issues, and our topic for today is a recent working paper he's written, Earnings Inequality, the Implications of the Rapidly Rising Cost of Employer-Provided Health Insurance. Mark, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about this. Well, it's incredibly important, and I was um, – this is an area of general interest to me, and in particular, the, the focus on inequality, but also standard of living, which whenever we try to measure – compensation, income, these kind of issues that you raised in your paper come up. And I thought you had some insights and some facts that were rather startling and uh, illuminating. So I'm very excited to, to talk about it. I want to start with some basic economic logic. What's the difference between, say, compensation and take-home pay for a worker? Well, there there are many, many differences uh, uh, between the two. Um, for most workers, um, they get a whole package uh, of uh, both pay and benefits when they work for an employer. Um, they'll, they may get a pension or they may get a contribution to a 401k plan. Um, and what's particularly relevant here is they um, very frequently will get health insurance uh, that whose costs will be shared. Uh, between the employer and the employee, but it's very important to, to remember that for most uh, in workers, uh, most of the cost is paid for uh, by the employer. Um, and, and as we'll discuss, health insurance is very expensive. Um, so this is a, a major cost for an employer and a major part of the the compensation package. There may be other benefits that uh, an employer will give to to workers. Um, uh, certainly, you know, vacation time and and um, uh, you know other types of leave, uh, perhaps other types of benefits, um, and then uh, of course added to to the pay uh, that uh, the worker ta- actually takes home. So there's a, there are a lot of a lot of components to compensation. And part of the part of the issue that is uh, uh, included here in this research, and also in the politics of of, of this matter, is take-home pay is pretty pretty noticeable, and it's pretty easy to measure. Um, and um, it's in you know official records and tax records and earnings and so on. But the other parts of compensation, the benefits that workers get, are harder to measure. And aren't as frequently measured, and so they're sometimes not a, not noticed as much in terms of their cost. Uh, it's not noticed as much to the worker, and it's not noticed as much to 
know, the researchers who, who look at these, these, uh, these matters. Um, but I can assure you the employer knows very much what, what all this costs. And it's very much part of the employer's consideration in terms of how to design the, the compensation package and, you know, what they can afford to pay, um, given their profits and their business, uh, what they can afford to pay in terms of, um, you know, straight take-home earnings. Uh, the employer really pays attention to these costs very carefully. So there's a gap to start with between what the employer pays and what the employee receives. Uh, physically, literally, there's a gap, meaning the employer has to pay for it. The employee takes home the cash part of it, and it's possible that the benefits that the employer has to pay for are worth the same amount to the employee, so the compensation that the employer receives is equal to the compensation that the employer pays. But it's also possible that the value of the benefits provided by the employer, which the employer has to pay for, may not be valued for all employees equally or, and by some, not at all. So if the employer provides, say, a daycare on site for employees uh, and I don't have any children, then that's a form of compensation that's a cost to the employer that I get no benefit from, whereas somebody who has multiple children might find that to be a wonderful value. And the point I want to emphasize – so first, um, talk about that and how uh, the labor market works in dealing with these issues about compensation versus income for employees. Yeah, so um, there, 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 there's a, a very complex mix of, of considerations to an employer – and designing a benefits package, uh, you know, the, sometimes you know has to has to be done in a in a one size fits all manner. Um, and um, so, if they you know they feel that some employees you know would appreciate, let's say, as you indicate, uh, you know, childcare, um, you know, they it obviously costs the employer uh, quite a bit, but they they give it to everybody, and they don't necessarily make an adjustment on a, you know on a one worker by worker basis, uh, you know, to the rest of their pay as to whether they're using the child care or not. So sometimes these things are done, you know, in a, in a, through approximations and averages. But there, there's another consideration, uh, and this is very important to our topic, is that there are also a lot of government rules that pertain to these benefits. And in particular, there's something called non-discrimination requirements in the tax code that particularly apply to retirement benefits and to health benefits. And that, and they state, I mean, they're very complex, and so I'm not going to go through all the, the nooks and crannies of them, but in, in very broad terms, they say that regardless of whether the worker is high paid or low paid, everyone gets the same benefits. Um, in, 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 in retirement benefits, that's usually as a percent of pay. But for health benefits, it's, it means the same benefits in dollar terms. So that the lower paid worker gets the same health insurance benefits in, in terms of the cost to the employer as the high paid worker. And that is a government requirement. Now, there are many other government requirements so, you know, coming from different parts of uh, federal and state law, um, and they have a big influence on, on how these, these packages are designed. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, we could discuss, you know, whether they're good policy or bad policy, but at least for our purposes, we have to recognize that they exist and they have an important influence on the design of uh, how benefits are provided. So let's talk about the role of taxes. Uh, 
most, almost all maybe, you, you tell me, most benefits are not taxable in the same way that income is taxable. So you could think about if you gave me, uh, let's say that you as the employer cover, say, $5,000 worth of health care insurance for me. One alternative would be you could raise my salary by $5,000 and let me pick my own health care plans, not approved by the company, et cetera. And that's not as attractive to me in many cases because if you give me $5,000 in income, I have to pay taxes on it. If you provide $5,000 of health care coverage or all kinds of other things that might be provided on the job, uh, I tend generally not to pay taxes on that. And that leads to uh, – which seems like a good thing, but uh, that has problems. So talk about that just as a general aspect of, of benefits. Yeah, uh, you're, you're 100% correct. Most, not necessarily all, but most uh, benefits that are provided uh, by employers are tax, uh, not taxed to the employee as income. Um, you know, the motivation for the, that, and this goes back way, way back to the beginning of the income tax. Um, you know, the, the motivation was that they're, they're meant as a type of incentive or a type of encouragement to the employer to, and to the employee to demand these, these benefits. Um, uh, I think the notion is, uh, you know, it's because it was thought that to have retirement benefits and to have health benefits is a good thing and that, uh, uh, employers and, and workers should be encouraged to have it. And so therefore they're, 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 they're not taxed. Um, you know, again, in retirement benefits, the rules are very complex. It's not a, it's not a open, a totally open, uh, uh, tax treatment. So there are limits. Um, you know, some people may recall that, for example, in their contributions to their 401k account, there, there are dollar limits that um, apply to restrict uh, the amount of uh, money that can be contributed uh, tax-free to 401k accounts. Again, the important point here with a, when our discussion of health insurance, there are no such limits for health insurance. So even very, very generous plans um, – you know, no deductibles, no co-pays, uh, no employee contribution for the insurance premium, you know, and there are such plans out there, um, totally tax-free. So um, that obviously is, is a contributing factor to, um, you know, having these plans. Um, and sometimes, you know, and I think many people argue for them to just grow seemingly without, without a limit. So the last point, or at least I think is the last point before we turn to healthcare in particular, that I think is so important and so unintuitive for most people, is the idea that uh, mandating benefits for workers is not a free lunch. Uh, I think a lot of people, certainly on Twitter and pundits in the op-ed pages of our newspapers and publications, have a, a tendency to say, well, if the government forces employers to provide benefit X – then that's good for workers because then they'll make sure that makes sure they have that benefit. And what people neglect is that that almost inevitably, I suppose we could cook up some scenarios where this is not true, but it's not easy to do. But that almost inevitably means lower take-home pay, lower salaries in terms of cash for that worker. And it's imaginable, and often the case in my belief, that workers would prefer the cash to the benefit. It's true that the benefit is tax-free, but sometimes the benefit isn't a value. 
So, you know, one example I always think of, and this is subtler relative to the standard benefit discussion we've been having, one example would be safety regulation. So we all, everybody likes the idea of, of a safe workplace. The question is, if you mandate certain expenditures by employers to make the workplace safe, uh, that is a maybe a way to help workers that is not as productive as paying them more money and letting them take their own steps to stay safe on the job. That is, it may be cheaper for workers to reduce the risk of injury than for employ- employers. That's not always the case, of course. And employers have a natural incentive to make their workplace safe because they want to attract workers to a safe workplace. It's easier than to do attract them to an unsafe one. But if you wanted a, quote, unsafe one, and it's not black and white, it's not zero one, it's actually continuous. If you wanted a relatively less safe workplace, you might be able to attract workers there with higher pay who would then take their own steps to make sure that they're not hurt on the job. And that that might be better for the workers, especially who have who are poor, who have low skills. And so when we mandate benefits for low-skilled workers in the name of helping them, we've taken away some freedom from them and some well-being because they cannot use their money as they uh, might choose. And you can get into a debate about whether they can choose wisely. And uh, I, of course, as listeners know, tend to be sympathetic to the idea that they can choose more wisely than the employer or the government. But that, that's the debate. The important thing is to recognize, I think, the unavoidable truth that benefits aren't free. They come out of uh, the salaries of workers and that that is a, a cost that has to be taken into account. Yeah, I mean, as you indicated, that it really is uh, economics 101. I mean, there may be a very few uh, circumstances where uh, the employer, if they're mandated to provide benefits, can pass that cost along. You know, if they're a, a regulated monopoly um, or, you know, uh, uh, sell their products in, in, in mon- you know, in monopoly situations and, and they don't have much competition. But let's face it, when you're, work- when you're doing business in a global economy, uh, there, are, there aren't many of uh, those type of uh, organizations around. So most employers, vast majority of employers, you know, pay their, their workers and it's pay, it's, it's compensation. It's, it's not the take home pay. They, they look at the cost of the employee as the cost of, uh, pay as benefits as well as the mandated benefits that they have to provide. And, and, and if there's more mandated benefits, uh, um, and, you know, and, and, and the going rate for, for workers is, you know, X and, and, um, and, you know, the profits that they make and, uh, you know, what economists call the marginal product, uh, is, you know, is why. And, um, uh, you know, if part of, of, uh, of, of X goes up because of mandated benefits, well, that means, uh, that the take-home pay is going to have to go down. And that's, it's, it's, um, you can almost call it a law of economics. In other words, it's something that you just, you can't get around. Uh, you know, again, in accepted in very special circumstances. And it's not, I want to make the point, it's not just mandated benefits. You know, it could, it could be that there are many, many benefits on the job that we don't think about. We, we, we tend, when we say on the job benefits or compensation, or we tend to think of these dramatic large categories like healthcare, vacations, a company car, cell phone, uh, dental care, health care, retirement, et cetera. But, of course, employers provide all kinds of things on the job that, that, are in t- that are not 
obvious and we don't think about like a, a, a warm place. There's heat. <laughs> there's there's light. There's sometimes there's a uniform. Sometimes there's training and explanations of things. And there's camaraderie and a corporate culture. And all these things are part of the job. And if culture, or more importantly, competition, encourages employers to provide something for employees, and that thing gets more expensive, even if it's not mandated, but it's just part of the the competitive environment, employers are going to respond to that. And how we then observe, since we don't easily observe compensation, but rather easily observe take-home pay, we may underestimate uh, the well-being of workers or their uh, relative situation to say, 10, 20 years ago, simply because we're not really measuring the right thing. And although we're going to focus on inequality, I also want to think about how these kind of issues affect our our, our perception of changes in standard of living over time, not just the inequality issue. And it's, of course, both. They interact. So do you want to say anything about that before we go on? No, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what, what you're saying. And it, uh, you know, there have been, a, there certainly have been some attempts over the years to, to try to measure these things, but they're, they're hard. And, um, you know, that, that's why, you know, getting a little bit into, into my contribution here, you know, when you get some unique data sources, um, you know, that, that, uh, that tr- in fact does measure some of the cost, to, the cost of some of these benefits, uh, you know, that, that gives us a great insight that we didn't have before. So let's start with just the logic of your argument, not the particular measurement, um, the ways you're going to measure it. But uh, your claim, which is quite clever and um, appears to be a matter mainly of just logic rather than um, bias or ideology, uh, your claim is that rising healthcare costs uh, affect our measurement of inequality if we're only looking at earnings rather than compensation. So it's a little bit complicated, but it's just pretty much basic algebra and logic. We're not going to do the algebra on the air, but we'll do the intuition of the logic. What, what's the argument you're making? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I, th- I think uh, just uh, basically arithmetic, um, but uh, you know, maybe to sort of. Uh, 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 put this in context a little bit, even before I go into the logic. Um, the important thing to keep in mind is how much, I don't, and again, I don't think people realize how much these costs have gone up. So here I'm going to cite a statistic from the, the Kaiser uh, Foundation, which collects information on the cost of health insurance. Just from 1999 to 2014, so 15 years, the cost to an employer, and this is on average, uh, of health insurance. So this is what the employer is paying, not what the employee is paying. But the employer is paying for health insurance tripled. Uh, that's just in 15 years. And so the income didn't, didn't triple, the economy didn't triple, but the cost of health insurance tripled in just 15 years. And so when you have that sort of, I would say, you know, I don't know if you call it dislocation or disequilibrium or uh, just sort of a, a massive change in an important part of the, the pay package, of course, this can have impacts 
uh, on things which are more easily measured, uh, which are which are earnings. So, anyways, getting to the the the, the logical uh, argument here. Uh, and we'll, we'll simplify it a little bit. It's, it's of course, more complicated in, uh, when you look at the data and when you consider a lot of uh, uh, institutional and market considerations. But let's, let's think of it in pretty simple terms. The cost of insurance is the health insurance to an employer is the same whether the worker is high paid or low paid. Um, and that's true, as I indicated, by law because of non-discrimination requirements. But it's also simply because that's simply the way you know pay packages work. That's sort of, uh, I even call it custom, or just for peace within the, the labor force, that everyone gets the same health insurance uh, benefit, regardless of whether they're high paid or low paid. Now, obviously, there are high paid and low paid workers, uh, people with more education or you know more value to the. Uh, to the uh, employer are going to be paid more as opposed to people who are, uh, are you know, either younger or don't have as much experience or, um, or simply don't, don't provide as much value and profit to the employer are obviously going to be paid less. So, you know, that's just natural and what everyone ex would expect. The employer looks at the whole cost. He doesn't look just at the take-home pay. He looks at you know, what does the insurance cost me and what does the take-home pay cost me? And they combine, combine that. And then they, you know, say, is, is the total package, um, you know, uh, going to make sense for this worker and for that worker? Now, when, you know, when, when health insurance is going up so much um, uh, it, over a short period of time, that's going to change relationships uh, that heretofore uh, were, you know, were, 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 were occurring in terms of take-home pay. So that, let's say at, a, at the initial point of our analysis, uh, let's say um, health insurance, you know, cost, uh, uh, you know, $4,000 per worker uh, the, for the worker who was earning $40,000. Um, you know that represented 10 percent of, of 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 pay, but for the worker who was earning a hundred thousand dollars, it was only four percent of pay. So let, then let's say you know uh, that that cost doubles, um, so it's eight thousand um, dollars. Um, so for the worker earning forty thousand, that's obviously going to be a, a lot higher percentage. Uh, than for the work the worker that's earning hundred thousand, and even if everyone gets, you know, everyone gets a, a pay a compensation pay increase because let's say the company is doing better or the economy is doing better over time, productivity increases and so on. Um, the, the the employer still has to pay the money for for the health insurance, and that represents more of percent of compensation for the low paid worker than for the high paid worker. And so they, the employer will will increase uh, take-home pay for everybody, but they're going to have to pay, increase it less for the low-paid worker than for the high-paid worker because the cost of, of having the worker uh, has gone up, um, you know, because of the cost of health insurance. Um, and that represents more of the, of the total compensation for the low-paid worker than for the high-paid worker. And you're going to see 
um, you know, at the end of the day, that uh, the take-home pay for the high-paid workers will have increased more than for the low-paid workers. So I want to take a step back and take a slightly different way of thinking about the numbers here and see if, if I'm doing it right. Okay. Part of the challenge of all this is that there's three million things happening at the same time. Uh, the economy's growing. Um, there's increases and decreases in the demand and profitability of a product of a particular company. Uh, there's increased scarcity of certain types of labor. So to make it simple, let's say all that's flat and static. Uh, it's the kind of uh, thing that drives non-economists crazy, but it helps you It helps you see what's actually going on. Well, that's the reason you, we do this as a, as a mental exercise. So let's say nothing is changing the economy except healthcare is getting more expensive. And let's say that Healthcare insurance doubles in the example you gave. So I'm the low paid worker. I was making forty thousand in take home pay, and I had this nice uh, compensation in the form of healthcare insurance that was worth four thousand dollars. And you're the high paid worker. You're making a hundred thousand in take home pay, but you've got your compensation is actually one hundred and four. So the ratio of our compensation is one hundred and four to forty four. But we don't see that. We just see the hundred to the to the uh, 40. Right. Now, let's say uh, health insurance doubles. It goes to 8,000, the example used. And I'm not any more productive, and neither are you. Um, what's going to happen in the marketplace approximately, and there's some wiggle room for this, but let's just take the extreme case. My, my take-home pay is going to go down. It's going to go down to 36 from 40 because my total compensation is going to stay at 44. I'm no more... I'm no more valuable to my employer than I was before. So their first impulse is going to – not their impulse. Competition among employers is going to tend to drive the salary of people like me down to 36, and yours is going to go down to 96. And the ratio of 96 to 36 is not the same ratio as 100 to, to 40. And as a result – did I do that right? You did it exactly right, and and I'll just conclude your your thought. Uh, therefore, it will look like the lower paid worker is falling behind the higher paid worker proportionally, but that's not actually the case because, as we know, total compensation for both for both uh, workers has not changed at all. Right. So the my my. The absolute gap between us is the same, but the ratio, which is what we tend to look at in these stories, has changed. And now let's move forward. Let's have healthcare ratchet up steadily, right? Healthcare gets increasingly expensive. And if that's happening, the gap between you and me is just going to continually get bigger if nothing else changes. Now, of course, something else is going to change. Uh, salaries are growing in general in an economy that's growing. But it's going to look like they're not growing very quickly because an increasingly large share of it is going toward healthcare. So there's two things going on that are deceptive when we only look at income rather than full compensation. The first is it'll look like as the poor were on average. Forget the poor and the rich. Forget the inequality issue. The first thing is going to, you're going to notice is that the growth in, in in income is going to be relatively low compared to the growth in compensation. That's the second thing is is that the inequality with at any point in time is going to be growing because compensation as a proportion of total excuse me benefits as a form of total compensation is increasing more rapidly than than take home 
than take-home pay is going to be. And that's always going to be true when, say, it's doubling or tripling healthcare insurance costs because productivity doesn't go up that fast. The other point to make is that I might – and this is just a reality. This is not a – it's hard – sometimes there's so much emotion around these issues. I think it's really hard to think about them clearly. But the reality is is that in that not-so-attractive scenario where my take-home pay falls by an additional 4000 to thirty six. I don't necessarily get $8,000 worth of benefit just because health insurance is more costly. I do if I need it or really want it, right? It's it. If I really feel compelled to have health insurance, the fact that it's $8,000 now and paid by the employer, I'm just, that's that's worth it for me. It's true. My take-home pay is down to 36 from 40, but I, I value it. And the more complicated case will be in terms of measuring standard of living and inequality – uh, is it when I don't value it? If it's gone up in ways that are not productive for me, but I'm through either mandates or competition, I'm forced to pay that uh, for it. I mean, I think it's just, if nothing else, listeners should should realize that I'm paying for those increases in healthcare insurance, not the employer. Just because it's, quote, covered by the employer masks what's really going on underneath. Yeah, I mean, that that, that uh, bleeds into a, a related topic, which I think is, is very relevant for politics and also the, you know, the policy and the economics of the issue is um, health care costs have, you know, are exploding. They are rising very rapidly. And the question comes uh, both at the individual level and at the company level and at the level of government and society as to whether those those uh, those benefits are worth it. In other words, whether they're on the margin providing us with, you know, a lot of increased health and and increased longevity and so on. Um, there's a, a strong debate about this, and there's some reason to think that, you know, they're not providing that that uh, marginal benefit. Um, you know, again, particularly when you consider uh, the very rapid increase in cost. So um, I think that becomes relevant. Uh, when we think about this at, at, at a higher level. Um, but you're certainly right, even at the individual level, people have different preferences for these, these type of benefits. And, uh, you know, compared to young, compared to old, um, all sorts of uh, individual situations and, and just, just general attitudes towards risk and uh, attitudes towards, um, you know, the, even getting health care. Some people are more interventionist uh, in their in their situation, and others are more you know don't don't necessarily uh, go to the doctor every you know at every uh, sniffle. So um, you know even at the individual level, not even considering broad societal considerations, people have different preferences for these things, and uh, one size fits all is is uh, probably not the best solution. So just to clarify the two issues that I think are easily confused that I probably jumbled up in the last comment I made and and while saying that we shouldn't confuse them. Let me let me let me make it clear. Philosophically, people may differ and do differ on whether government should mandate certain kinds of benefits. Uh, they can uh, I happen to be a person who who's very opposed to that, but I understand the argument. It's not open and shut. Um you can be a fine human being and think the government should mandate health care, the government should make health care insurance deductible, et cetera, et cetera, um, for all kinds of reasons, political economy, philosophical, ideological reasons. At the same time, 
there's a separate issue that we're talking about here, which is once you do that, the measurement of well-being of workers and the inequality across workers is going to be much more difficult to observe because we don't regularly generate government reports on compensation in dollar terms. We instead generate reports on worker pay in dollar terms. We are missing a large part of compensation, and that affects our understanding of inequality, and it affects our understanding of well-being over time, changes in standard of living, progress for low- and middle-income and high-income workers, and that that has nothing to do with whether you think it's a good idea to have mandated health care or government benefits of this kind or another or the non-discriminatory kinds of uh, regulations that we face. We're simply talking here about the numerical part. And to me, the only thing controversial about that part of this is, quote, who pays for it. That is the story I just told where salaries fell 36 from 40 to 36. It is possible under different models of the labor market that the employer might have to eat some of those costs. They won't all be imposed on the on the employee. So when when we said earlier, when you said earlier that between 99 and 2014 healthcare costs to employers tripled, my first thought is, well, that means that employees had to pay triple because it comes out of their compensation. Now you can debate that. That is debatable. You can argue that it doesn't all come out of compensation. And economists, this has to do, we're not going to get into it, with the elasticity of supply and demand for labor of, of certain types. But that there is an effect uh, on employees when costs go up to employers is, that's in, you can't argue with that. Well, you, can, you can argue about how, the size of it. You can argue how important it is. You can argue about whether employers have to bear some of those costs. They don't all fall on the employees that markets aren't fully competitive, et cetera, et cetera. You know, at, at one time, you know, when these uh, measurement systems uh, and, and tax systems were designed, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, um, you know, when these benefits were not very costly, um, you know, health insurance was cheap. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so it, maybe it didn't matter as much because uh, it was a, you know, more than almost a rounding error or, or it wasn't, it wasn't that significant in terms of whether, you know, perhaps we didn't tax it or we didn't measure it in our, in our uh, income measurement systems. Uh, it didn't matter as much, but you know, when, when you have these, these costs increasing as rapidly as they have, um, you know, those systems of measurement, you know, become increasingly outmoded. Um, as ways of looking at people's well-being and, you know, just in terms of what they're earning, what they really are earning. So, uh, you know, that that is, a, is also a reality that, uh, you know, when these costs have increased so much, uh, we just have fallen behind in, 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 our, in our ability to both understand and measure these things. Okay, so now let's come to the magnitudes. So, the, as you say, in the old days – small proportions so this distinction between compensation and income was relatively unimportant. And then now the question is, well, how important is it? I think when, when I argue with people about the importance of, of focusing on compensation rather than just income, one of the things you hear is, well, okay, that, you know, it's true, but 
low-income workers, middle-income workers, they don't really get many benefits. The, the most of the benefits are accruing to, you know, it used to be the case that, I, that everybody would say get a pension, or but now that's mostly gone, uh, and only the higher-end workers are getting benefits. So let's first just talk about the rough crude magnitudes for who are the, the magnitude of benefits for workers across different uh, income levels in the economy today. What do we know yeah, about so that? I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm going to – I'll cite uh, some statistics uh, from my paper. Uh, so just taking two years, um, um, uh, 1992 and 2010. So the, looking at the lower paid workers, those who are in the 30th percentile. So these are people basically earning – they're full-time workers, but they're basically earning uh, minimum wage. Um, their health insurance – as a share of compensation, and this is data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So this is based on a government survey. It's a very well-established survey, uh, very um, uh, carefully designed, um, and it's a, it's a survey of employers. So it doesn't require the recall Memory, of workers. Yeah. You know, as to what they think they're getting and what maybe they're getting, it's you know, it's 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 directly to the employer that knows what these things cost. So anyway, so in 1992, the at the low income worker, their health insurance as a share of compensation was a, about seven and a half percent of compensation um, for the very highest paid worker in the 99th percentile. So we're talking about the one percent that people talk about, their health insurance as a share of compensation was only four and a half percent. So, because again, it's sort of to a first degree approximation, um, it costs the employer the same thing to provide health insurance, whether it's a very high paid worker or a low paid worker. Now, in, in reality, there, there are distinctions and, you know, there are differences by geography, by type of employer and so on. But again, these are, these are actual statistics from this survey of employers and the low paid workers had a higher share of health insurance paid by their employer as a part of compensation compared to 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 the high paid workers. And repeat that repeat no, 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 no. the ratio repeat the ratio again. This is nineteen ninety two. It was seven point seven point something to four point something, right? Yeah. So basically seven and a half percent to four and a half percent. Okay. So fast forward health insurance benefits were more costly as a share of compensation, total total compensation for the low paid worker than for the high paid worker. And these are, you know, incontrovertible statistics, um, again, based on, on the survey. So it's not a matter of ideology or some claim that, you know, well, paid workers don't get health insurance. Or, you know, or your attempt to try to measure what the health care is worth to a low-wage paid worker or a high-paid worker. It just – these are just what the government gathered what, from employers that they paid out of – that they paid out of pocket. Yeah. What they what it cost them to yeah, to, to have, the, have those workers working for them exactly. So it just it so, just it just important okay. it just important to add that you know when I, we've said many times that it's hard to measure these benefits. That's only because of the way the government tends to report them, right? So when they we have surveys of workers where we ask them people what they earn. We have surveys of employers. We ask people we ask them what they pay. The things that typically get reported and talked about in the media are income. These compensation numbers that you're quoting, they're they're black and white. They're they're checks written by employers that it's not like, well, I wonder what it is, how important it is, I'm gonna guess. These are these are costs to employers that, that are measured in this survey. 
right? So it's yeah, just... it, it, it is indeed, uh, you know, based on, on, on a survey of employers. Um, you know, most of the time that people talk about pay, they talk about their income. And a lot of times that comes from income tax returns. And a lot of scholars um, that look at income inequality basically uh, focus on income tax uh, data. Um, but again, that's, that's take-home pay. Um, it does not include these non-taxed uh, sources of, of compensation. They're okay. simply not on the tax return. Carry on. So, uh, yeah. So 92, so, I mean, seven and a half to can, four, we can, something. Go forward to I'm 2000. Sorry? You were saying, I, I interrupted you. In 1992, the ratio from the, of the 30th percentile worker to the first percentile worker was seven and a half to four point something. Go forward and what, what four, is it? Four and a half, exactly. So now we move to 2010. Um, you know, pay has gone up, but benefits have, uh, uh, the cost of health insurance has gone up even more. So in 2010, looking at the low paid worker, the cost of health insurance paid by the employer as a share of compensation for the low paid worker has increased from seven and a half percent to 11.6%. Um, so that's a, what, uh, three percentage point increase, 3.1 percentage point, 4.1, Thank you for that correction. So 4.1 percentage point increase in the share of compensation that's going to, that is required to pay for, uh, for the employer to pay for health insurance for the low paid worker. For the very highest paid worker, the 99th percentile, that share of compensation that goes to pay for health insurance did increase, but it only increased to 5.7%. So that was an increase from 4.5 to 5.7. I think I'll do the math right now, 1.2 percentage points. So the percentage point increase as a share of compensation was almost four times the, the as increase for low paid workers as for high paid workers. And so for again for low paid workers it was four, four point uh we said four point one uh four point one percent. For high paid workers it was one point one point two percent. And um you know, I mean, that's, those are the facts. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think people can argue either with the logic or with, with the data in terms of that the consequences of rapid increases in health insurance are felt more at the low pay, by the low paid workers than by the high paid workers. Well, they could argue with the, they could say it's not a good study. They could argue it wasn't representative. They could argue it left out this or that. Uh, but, what I find important about what you've done is that at least you have some measurement of this, which – and let people argue with it if they want. Um, here's another – here's a paragraph from the paper I'm going to read that I found just so striking. It's a much shorter time period, uh, but it really makes clear how these effects are important. Uh, and I'm going to read it selectively so that, again, we're bombarding listeners with a lot of numbers, and I hope you guys out there are doing okay, but – it just it's just it's so important uh from we're talking about 1999 to 2006 this is a 7 year period uh and you're quoting again uh data from the bureau of labor statistics so the employer cost uh of healthcare for a 
low-wage worker went from 6.2 to 12.2% of compensation over that time period. Uh, that's just a huge increase. Um, while total compensation for the group rose by 41% over that seven-year period, this is not corrected for inflation because it's not the point, uh, 41%, wages grew by only 28 So if you looked at wages, you say, well, over seven years, they're up 28%. It's a pretty good, it's not great, but it's okay. And you'd have to correct for inflation to see how much better up they actually were. But their compensation went up 41. That's a huge difference, 41 versus 28, trying to assess their well-being over that period. To go up to the high end, for a high-end worker, the top 1% over this period, smaller window than we just talked about, healthcare costs grew from uh, 4 to 4.3, tiny increase in percentage terms. The more important point is earnings grew 35%. Compensation grew 36% for high-end workers because it's such a small portion. It's not that big a difference between compensation and earnings. What, but however, if you just looked at earnings, the low-wage workers, their earnings only went up 28% compared to 35% for the high-end workers. They'd say, well, inequality is growing. But if you looked at compensation, compensation went up 41% for low-wage workers and only 36 for high end. So actually, the true inequality is getting smaller. And that's really the, the point of your paper. A lot of numbers there. But again, the basic intuition is pretty clear that if we looked at compensation rather than earnings, we'd see a, a different picture. We'd actually seeing the, the lowest wage workers in the day to the 30 percentile full-time workers actually doing better. Their standard of living is growing faster and the people at the high end. But if you only look at earnings, you're misled. What about over the longer time period that you look at, 1992 to 2010? Well, when you look over a longer period of time, of course, there, there, there are many other factors that are coming into play, although the advantage of looking at 92 to 2010 is they are similar points in the business cycle. So they're just, they're both at the, just immediately following the, the low point in, in, in the economic cycle. Um, but still, there's a lot, you know, over a longer period of time, the results aren't quite as striking. They're still there, uh, so that about half the uh, increase in inequality is explained by the increase in the healthcare costs, uh, but it's not a one for one. So, uh, to be more specific, um, looking at this 92 to 2010 period, in the 30th percentile, earnings growth was 60%, but if you look at compensation, which includes the um, growth of healthcare costs, the very rapid growth of healthcare costs. The growth is 70%. Whereas if you look at the 99th percentile, earnings growth was 78% and compensation growth for the 99th percentile was 82%. So you do have both earnings growth and compensation growth higher for the upper earners than for the lower workers. But, and this is the, you know, the, the point of the analysis and the, and the, the main finding here is that compensation growth grows more for the lower paid workers when you um, th than looking at earnings growth alone. Um, and it's relatively more for the lower paid workers than for the higher paid workers. So um, we still have the result that um, 
a big part of the increase, not all, but a big part of the increase in uh, earnings inequality uh, is is explained for by the increase in the, the rapid increase in the growth of healthcare. And I, I want to sort of even move a little bit further in terms of thinking about it in terms of what role the uh, you know the government or government policy uh, would have, and that is you know if you just think that that you know there's some something nefarious going on in terms of I don't know power relationships or or just plain unfairness um, in the labor market between high paid and low paid workers. Well, that you know obviously indicates one set of policy prescriptions. Uh, you know, increasing taxes on the high paid and so on. But if the large, large part of the explanation is the increase in the cost of health care, well, that, you know, I mean, and that's the cause, well, then you presumably should address the cause, um, you know, and not, not the symptoms. Um, and that clearly leads to an entirely different set of policy prescriptions and, 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 uh, and, and, and uh, thoughts uh, in terms of how, how to deal with this, this issue. And you're suggesting that, uh, in fact, compensation inequality may be falling while earnings inequality is rising. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah, either either it's falling or it is it is uh, or has not it has not increased or it has not increased certainly as much as uh, what um, just the earnings and income data show. It depends on you know the data uh, the data source and the time periods, but the the, the broader point, which is, you know, consistent across different time periods and different ways of looking at the data, is that the increase in inequality is highly exaggerated when we look at just at earnings or income as opposed to total compensation. So I want to raise one more issue related to this issue of who's going to pay for this and how it gets paid for. If my, going back to the example used at the very beginning of the conversation, if I'm making uh, forty thousand in salary and four thousand is in healthcare uh, insurance that my employer is paying for me, and it doubles or let's make it really dramatic, it quadruples or quintuples, and it's now twenty thousand instead of four, so it goes up to uh, uh, sixty thousand is my compensation. If 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 I just got a free ride in healthcare, my employer is not going to be able to afford that, so my employer is going to be tempted to take that whole. 20,000 out of my income. And so I've got 44,000 in compensation. And they say to me, my employer says, well, I'm sorry, my healthcare costs are really expensive. You're no more productive. I'm going to give you a salary of now 24 instead of 40. I am going to respond by saying, I quit. I need to find a job that doesn't cover healthcare insurance. I'm going to go work for a firm that is homogeneous, only has low-wage workers, so it isn't a discriminatory problem, and none of us are going to get health care. Or my, if my employer already is, has low-wage workers mostly, they might just decide, folks, uh, you're not going to get health care anymore. It's just too expensive. I can't afford it. And they might even conceivably have to give me a raise in my income. So react to that and how that might uh, contaminate some of your results, because it's kind of amazing that workers in the 30th percentile are still 11% of their – over 11% of their compensation is health care. You'd think a lot of them would want to work somewhere else maybe and have more income. 
Yeah, um, it is. A, it is an interesting and uh, almost surprising result. But it, I mean, it is. It is in the data. It's uh, actually almost 12% of of compensation is uh, for the lower paid workers is is the cost of healthcare. Uh, I would say there are a few few things going on here. Number one is um, you know. Uh, it, Healthcare is is uh, you know this, because it's so expensive. It is a risk uh, to to workers, and they they do want insurance. Uh, they may not want to spend as much as it costs, uh, uh, but it's still nonetheless something that is of value to them, uh, even if only as a as a uh, covering a risk, um, like they have car insurance or homeowners insurance. So that's number one. Number two is it is still likely to be cheaper to be covered by an employer than it is to go out in the in the marketplace uh and buy uh insurance on your own um health insurance on your own which is uh can be expensive or or you know you have to pass underwriting um you know apps and talking about the ACA which is a whole other uh subject but here we're talking about uh, historical data through 2014 so the ACA was not a factor. So, um, you know, it's still maybe that it, you know, it's better to be insured by your employer than to, to try to insure on your own. Um, and it is also the case that, uh, um, you know, you're, you probably don't have an alternative in terms of Medicaid or, you know, you might try to, uh, to fund your healthcare costs on your own, but, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, um, uh, and maybe even try to get charity care from the hospital, but that's that's not all. These are, are sort of second best um, and not not the most uh, desirable outcomes. And so, even though it's really a lot of money, uh, you, you know, it it, ha- it didn't happen overnight. Also, we have to remember this is this is a, a, a phenomenon that is longstanding, and um, precisely because it, it didn't happen. One day it was uh, four thousand, the next day it was twenty thousand. Where I think you would get your 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 uh, very strong reaction, but this has happened over time, uh, so therefore it's 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 more muted. Um, you know, the other other consideration is it is a tax advantage to get it through your employer than as opposed to paying it uh, for for it on your own, and that uh, is is a is a big advantage. Um, and finally, I would say that it has happened. Somewhat, um, um, you know, around the edges, um, and as you as you sort of note, if it's particularly in low low wage firms, um, uh, some employers have indeed dropped healthcare coverage. It hasn't been dramatic, um, but there has been some of that as well. So all of that taken, you know, in in total, um, I think explains the, the data. I mean, the bottom line is we still see it in the data that uh, a very rapid increase in uh, focus in percentage terms on the lower paid uh, for the cost of health care. Now, one of the problems with the paper or the claim, I don't know how to, how to say it, is that most of the people who've tried, maybe all the people who've tried, except for you, who've tried to measure these kind of effects, have to bend themselves into pretzels to impute some kind of guess about healthcare costs to the certain class of workers or some whether some measure of compensation. This data set that that we're talking about that that you've drawn these conclusions from, again, the conclusions, there's a theoretical set of claims here that I think is almost impossible to argue with. Then there's an empirical question. How important is it? You're measuring the importance 
comes from a data set that is um, that only you have, it appears. So talk about where those data come from and why, why do you have access to it and other folks don't. It is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's good. It's not your uncle. Uh, but why aren't other people using these data to answer these questions? Well, uh, you know, as you've indicated, so if, you know, the, the logic is so obvious that, uh, you know, uh, obviously I'm not the only one to have sort of thought of this. Um, so, for example, the Congressional Budget Office has looked at this question. Some scholars at the Brookings Institution have looked at this question. And they come up with a similar um, conclusion, but not as, as empirically as strong as what I have. And the reason why I believe that they, they don't come up with as strong a, uh, empirical result is that they're using data sources which are sort of, I guess you could characterize them as indirect. They have to do some imputations. They have to do some smoothing. They have to get data from different data sources, which are not always consistent, consistently measured. Um, sometimes they're measured with error. Um, because they rely on the recall of, of workers or households. So the, those data sources are, are inferior to what I have, which is um, the same data source that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses to, to report on very widely uh, quoted statistics on what, what's going on with wages and what's going on with um, the cost of, of uh of uh, hiring workers. Um, these are very widely used and very widely respected statistics. I did have to ask for this data in terms of to get the detailed data on the numbers by, comp by compensation level. That is not something that the Bureau of Labor heretofore has reported. Um, and I, you know, I can't honestly say that I understand why others have been asked for it. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't um, a slam dunk uh, in terms of me getting it. It required a, a little bit of effort and a little bit of persistence on my part to convince them that this is a worthy study. Um, but ultimately, they did provide me with these statistics, and to, you know, I have to be very grateful to them for doing so. Um, but I, I can't fully explain why others haven't tried to, to get these statistics, um, which I think are, as I indicated, are very high quality. And, um, uh, you know, you, the same statistics are used for widely, widely recognized and widely, uh, widely cited. Um, the unique thing here was to get some of, some of the detail on these on earnings and compensation by earnings level. Uh, that's what's unique here and what has not been heretofore published. And can other scholars get access to those data now? I, 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 assume, I assume so if they ask. Um, uh, can you make those public? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of mine to, to give. So I'm a little uh, reluctant to, uh, you know, offer on the behalf of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, statistics that they, that they you know, they required a negotiation to get. So... Um, but, I, you know, I think the, the question could be posed to the Bureau of Statistics uh, as to, uh, you know, uh, sharing it with others. But the point is, is that, you know, the, the BLS puts out a ton of data, uh, as do a lot of government agencies, and they put that out in um, various ways. So just to take an example, um, when when Piketty and Saez 
uh, look at inequality over time using IRS data, where they've done a similar kind of negotiation, I think. there's They get access to data from the IRS. They make public their data that they've created from the IRS. They don't make public the IRS data. They, in, in the course of, they very generously post all kinds of spreadsheets that that are that an economist or interested person can can play with themselves and check, and many people have, and that's great. But of course, there's there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface. There's a lot of imputed and implicit assumptions that are made to get to certain numbers in those spreadsheets, and that that part's much more opaque. Um, what I'm at, what I'm wondering is, is that when you present the numbers in your um, in your paper, are in in what sense are those ju- just a uh, straightforward out arith- arithmetic, you know, ratios of things that the BLS provided versus crunching and and assumptions behind them that you had to do to get to the conclusions you drew? There's very little crunching and and no imputations and no no uh, smoothing and no no um, uh, inferences. It is uh, you know the. The spreadsheets were provided to me entirely based on on, on the raw data, so uh, there's very little of that. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I think the issue, you know, certainly with IRS statistics and and I think also with the Bureau of Labor Statistics as well is, you know, these are are surveys or or actual data that come from you know actual companies and and actual individuals. And we do have to be uh, mindful of their their confidentiality. So, you know that may that's why there needs to be this negotiation. And you know the you know when you when you get to more refined levels of this data to do this analysis, you do have to be a little more concerned about um, you know being, the ability to identify. Oh, you know uh, IBM you know has these data. You know that that's a commercial secret to IBM, and they share this information with the BLS on the on the on the on the uh, promise that the, their data will not be shared. Uh, their specific data, and similarly, you know, with uh, with uh, tax data, obviously, uh, we have to be concerned about confidentiality. So it's it's a balance um, in terms of you know uh, sharing all the data as opposed to being concerned about confidentiality. I, I think in 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 my regard, um, you know, the, the data was there was no very little crunching, uh, almost no crunching. Uh, it, it's it's basically the raw data. It's unfortunate though that we have to take your word for it for now. I mean, I know you; you're a nice guy. You could have made a mistake though, right? Even the nicest person makes spreadsheet errors. Um, it, it would be useful if the BLS would make this more widely available so people could confirm your, your numbers uh, and their reliability. I, I think that, that's, a, that's a balance, uh, which, um, you know, is, is, uh, is a broader, broader issue and, and an argument certainly could be made, you know, for the BLS to do so. I think also, you know, there's also a practical issue in terms of the BLS does provides a lot of data. They have limited staff. And so, um, you know, I think there's that that element as well, um, but I think mainly it's a question of um, you know when you when you cut the data more f- finely as you need to in this in this exercise to look at levels of uh, compensation, 
uh, you know, you have a little bit more risk of revealing confidential information. But that that's a, a judgment and a, a balance. And having said that, I just want to I want to conclude, and then I'll give you the last word. Um, it's always going to be a question of magnitudes. It's always a question of how important things are that you know one notices or or observes. And inevitably, there's imperfection in trying to measure those magnitudes. I spent a lot of time in this program talking about complex, sophisticated econometric analysis. That's not what this is. Uh, these are just some facts. Even facts can be tricky. You can you chose the 30th percentile uh, on the grounds that that was basically the full-time worker cutoff. Uh, as we said before, it could be the survey is not that representative. It's for reasons that we don't understand. It could be it leaves out certain categories of workers that are important. It's always issues that are even interpreting just basic, quote, facts. But I think the fundamental thing that I learned from your paper, and I think I'd like listeners to consider, is this idea that compensation earnings are not the same, that our inevitable focus on earnings doesn't tell the whole story when we look at inequality. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And, and let me just conclude with a little bit of moving a little bit into the policy realm. Uh, you, know, you know, as we talk about inequality and also as we talk about, um, you know, the repeal and replacement of the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, um, you know, I think the, the, the contribution that I'm making is the two are tied. That um, you know, particularly as healthcare has has grown as a share of income, and just as a share of our economy, now it's almost one out of every five dollar in our economy. You know, when we talk about inequality, when we talk about uh, the role of of health insurance and the cost of health insurance and who should pay for it, um, and you know how that those those uh, those those programs should be set up, the two are so 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 intertwined. Uh, and so Im importantly uh, uh, connected to one another that we really have to think about them in the same, you know, in the same breath almost. We talk about, we should talk about them in the same breath. And as we, you know, go forward uh, and de design a replacement for, for the Affordable Care Act, uh, I think we really need to really address the root cause of this, of the, the problem of, you know, uh, of income inequality, which is the rising cost of healthcare costs. And I think we need to deal, deal with that more directly than we have been. And we've been very indirect and very tentative about it. I think we need to be more aggressive and more direct in, in addressing that problem. My guest today has been Mark Warshawski. Mark, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.